Acts chapter number five. And, uh, man, it's good to be back. I wasn't able to be here on Sunday night. I had to go up Jamestown, try to straighten Curtis out before he comes down here. And, uh, just make sure he knew what was what. And, uh, so we, we went up there and I, and I hate I couldn't be here on a Sunday night. I heard lots of reports and by all accounts, uh, you know, Brother Kerry, he really laid an egg. So I, I hate I put you through that. And, uh, no, I heard only good things and, uh, heard that he did as, as fine as he's ever done. Not, not surprised by that. I appreciate him. Acts chapter number five. Let's begin reading in verse number one. This is probably very familiar to you. And we're not even going to read the entirety of this story. I really just want to read the first five verses and I want to pick up on a truth. And, and it's probably going to be a short message tonight. I know better than to say that, but, uh, probably going to be a short message tonight, but I just want to share with you what God laid on my heart. Acts chapter number five. Verse number one, the Bible says, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Use it in our hearts and minds. May Christ be magnified not only through the things that are said, but, Lord, how they're received. And, Lord, not just through what's preached, but but through the obedience of our hearts tonight, myself included, Lord. May we all be receptive to the truth of your word. May it strike home, Lord, and may it do a work in our lives that brings you glory. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the midweek prayer meeting. Thank you for the way it ministers to my heart. Now, use these next few moments, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. On a Sunday morning, I preached out of the life of salt, and we preached on this thought, the lies that we tell ourselves. We looked at when Saul neglected to obey the Lord fully in slaying and destroying the Amalekites. But what we really spent the majority of our attention on was the conversation between him and the prophet Samuel, and the way that he sought to excuse his lack of obedience. And we made the comment Sunday morning that it is a master class in dancing around your sin. He shows us exactly all the tactics and techniques that we use in dancing around the issue of when we've sinned against the Lord. What a shameful thing it is that God would go to such great lengths to die for our sin and we would not even be willing to acknowledge it. What an embarrassment that is. That he would give his son on Calvary to make a way for our sin to be forgiven. And we won't even be honest enough to admit when we've committed sin in the first place. And so when you look at Saul's behavior there, certainly the theme that rang in my mind was the lies that we tell ourselves. But now we come to the New Testament tonight. And in the days of the early church, we find this story about a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And the verse that jumped out to me and probably did to you as well is verse number three. Peter says this to Ananias. Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, lying to the Holy Ghost. Would we dare be so bold as to lie to the third person of the Trinity? I'd say this, that though it is very easy to stand outside the pages of Scripture 
and cast stones back into it, we'd all, if we were honest, have to admit we've had our moments, just like Ananias, when we have had the temerity, had the boldness, had the arrogance to lie to the indwelling Holy Spirit as he sought to deal with our life. I want you to notice this verse begins or this passage begins with a conjunctive word. It says in verse one, but a certain man named Ananias. You know, I remember my pastor saying years ago, he said, you know, it's a good thing that God doesn't strike everyone dead that lies to the Holy Ghost today or there'd be no one left around. That's certainly true. Amen. I can say amen to that. Uh, but I would qualify it by saying this. It's not that God always struck everyone dead that did this. But rather, there is a context to this passage that frames what was taking place and exactly why God dealt with such harshness in this particular situation. And, you know, everything that happens happens in a context. That may seem like like a silly or superficial statement, but I want you to understand that because it's very easy when we are warned of the peril that lays wait for us in our life to be dismissive about. Very easy. So I'd never be me, preacher. I'd never do that. I'd never do what he did. Oh, but wait a minute now. There's a context to. And before you rush to say that would never be me, it would behoove you to stop and think about the context and realize that don't nobody get where Ananias is just in a moment. There was a road that led here. And I want you to notice some of the things that are going on. It really begins back in chapter number four. And I suppose a person could read as far back as they wanted to. It all gives more context. But for the sake of brevity, let's pick up at verse 32 of chapter 4. The Bible says this, And the multitude of them that believe, that's talking about the church at Jerusalem, the early New Testament church, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And there is where our text picks up and says, but a certain man named Ananias. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants to lay in juxtaposition the behavior of Ananias and Sapphira to their uh, comrades, to their, maybe that's... (laughs) I don't like that word comrades, amen. (laughs) Compatriots, maybe, I don't know. Uh, To their, uh, you know, uh, around here, it's just, you know, fellow criminals, amen. But uh, to their to their fellow members there in the church, uh, to lay them side by side and to show the difference in their behavior. But here's what I want you to understand. The time when Satan targeted the local church could be described in in three ways. Three statements describe the spirit of the church at this time, what's going on in the church. Let me say, number one, it was a season of great unity in the church. Verse number 32 says, The multitude of them that believe were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now, let me just pause here and make a statement of commentary. Because the Marxists would have you to believe that this is some biblical pattern uh, for state ownership of things. Uh, but there's a few problems with their theory. One, 
it wouldn't have been the state anyway that would have had ownership of it. But then, too, it's not suggesting that anything was confiscated, but rather that they, out of grace in their hearts, chose to, in generous fashion, give of what they have. See, here's the reality, and here's what the Marxists don't want you to understand. I believe in a free market. That doesn't mean I'm against charity. I just don't believe it ought to come at the end of the government's guns. It ought to be my choice to give and your choice to give. I'm for giving. I'm not against that. But giving is not really giving if it's first confiscated. And by the way, I would just make this passing statement as well. It didn't take very long before this pattern and this process, this system, was even forfeited in the early church. You remember that Paul later on makes the statement that if a man won't work, he ought not eat. Why did Paul need to make that statement? Well, because human nature, the, the infirmity of the human condition was such that people were beginning to take advantage of the generosity there in the early New Testament church. So nowhere is it mandated that we throw everything into a common pot and can't have ownership of things. But rather the Holy Spirit is endorsing not as much the activity, but the spirit of unity that was behind this giving in the first place. In other words, everybody was getting along in the Lord. They weren't getting along without the Lord. It's what the ecumenical movement wants. But they were getting along in the Lord. With grace in their hearts, they were able to band together and to be used of God. And let me say that any time there is a season of great unity in the church, the devil will always seek to find an inroad in someone's life. Any time that the church is, is getting along, things are going well, people loving on each other, and, and the church is, is making progress, the devil will always seek to find some weak link, some person whose heart and life he can get into to try to destroy and so discord. So it was a season of great unity. Verse 33 says this with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So not only was it a season of great unity, but it was a season of great ministry. It's a season when God was working powerfully in their midst. I'm very proud of our church's participation in this track day challenge. I'm proud of their participation in giving out tracks all year long and the way that people labor and, and serve the Lord. And you mark it down, when a church really gets serious about doing something for God, the devil's going to wake up and pay attention. Uh, listen, the carnal crowd may not notice when somebody's doing something for God. The self-involved crowd may not notice when somebody's doing something for God, but the devil notices when somebody's doing something for God. And he will inevitably try to do something to destroy the work of God. He hates to see the work of God being carried out. So it was a season of great ministry. And then verse 34 says this, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. It was a season of great generosity, a season of self-sacrifice. A season when people were beginning to weigh things in eternal terms. I'll tell you this, man. The devil gets real upset when we lose our fascination with the glitter and tinsel of the world. Man, he gets upset when we realize things are just things. And one of the great things, and maybe this is just me being, uh, you know, uh, delusional, I don't know, but... I'm trying to see the good in everything. And let me tell you one of the good things I'm seeing as we watch our country economically crumble around us is hopefully people are starting to realize how little stuff is worth. It just ain't worth much of anything. 
And, you know, you, you can spend all of your life investing in these things that you think provide you protection and you, you think provide you a certain standard of life. And then in a moment, it can be taken away from you. And we're beginning to realize, I mean, you say, preacher, you against stuff? No, I'm not against stuff. But, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with us having stuff as long as our stuff don't have us. And these people were learning that if they invested in eternity, it paid greater dividends than it paid investing in this life. And so it's in this season where God's doing great things that a man named Ananias lets the guard, the shield of his heart down and allows Satan to get an inroad and to find a weak spot in the New Testament church. It appears as though it begins when in verse 36, a man named Barnabas takes land and sells it and brings the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, you might disagree with what I'm about to say, and of course Barnabas would go on uh, in missionary journeys with, with the Apostle Paul and, and be used of God in a great way. But the way that his name is mentioned here, Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, in other words, the son of comfort or an encouraging individual, it would seem as though he got this moniker, he got this nickname through this act of generosity. That people began to think of him as a person who was just a great encourager in the Lord. And you, again, might disagree with what I'm about to say, and and I'll clarify what I mean by that more here in a moment. Peter makes the statement that Ananias didn't have to give anything. He could have kept it all, and certainly there is a truth to that. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not contradicting that. But I don't believe it's by accident that Ananias got it in his mind in the first place to sell a parcel of land and to give the money to the Lord. I think that Ananias looked at what God was doing in and through the life of Barnabas, and I think God began to deal with his heart about it. I think he began to think about how other people were serving the Lord, and he was not. And this is not a bad thing. Listen, we ought to be challenged by the way others serve God. We should be, man. Listen, we're not so delicate that we can't handle being provoked to emulation, as Paul said in the book of Romans. It ought to. We ought to look at other people serving God and say, hey, why not me? We ought to look at other people serving God and say, hey, how come they're getting to have all the fun? We ought to look at it and say, hey, how come they're doing it and I'm not doing it? And so I don't think this is a bad thing that happens. The problem was not that he gave. The problem was not even necessarily as much that that he gave part and didn't give the other. But the problem is that in this scenario of God working on his heart and life, Instead of him yielding fully to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and doing precisely what God expected of him, he instead chose to lie to the Holy Spirit and therein to lie to himself and to try to convince himself that he had done something that he had not done. I want you to notice three thoughts with me tonight and then we'll be done. Notice with me, number one, the details of their lies. What did they lie about? And here's the question we have to ask. What are the kind of things that we lie to the Holy Spirit about? What are the things that we have a tendency to bend the truth sometimes to the point where it breaks? What are the things that we're tempted to lie about? Well, in many ways, the very same thing that he lied about. The Bible says in verse 1, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it's obvious from what Peter says in verse 3 that the problem is not that he only brought part of it. I do think for him personally there was a problem in that. 
But Peter's saying, I'm not upset that you didn't bring it all to me. I'm upset because you claimed that you gave everything when you didn't really give everything. Can I tell you the first thing we lie to the Holy Spirit about? We lie about what we've given to him. The problem is they said, we've given it all when they hadn't given it all. It happens all the time. It happens to you and it happens to me. We'll hear a preacher get up and, and they'll start preaching about giving your all to Christ and, and really selling out for him and living 100% for Christ Jesus. And we'll sit there and academically in our mind, we'll agree with that because we know it to be true. We might even be so honest as to do a sort of inventory of our life and and acknowledge some areas of our life where we're not serving the Lord 100%. But then when it comes time to move towards the Lord, when it comes time to do something about that, (coughs) can I tell you, it's good that our eye affects our heart. It's good that we're touched by preaching. But it's of no use for preaching to touch us if it doesn't transform us. It's of no use for it to challenge us and charge us if it doesn't change us. And we've sort of developed this this strange, sick, Maoist struggle session perspective about preaching where somehow just going and sitting in a pew and getting beat up about not being what we ought to be, we think that's God's design in preaching. And it's not. God's design is he's not some sadist. He's not got a preacher up with a cat of nine tails to emotionally whip you and make you feel like a terrible person. The purpose of it is that as you are challenged about these things, that you would then respond in obedience and change about these things. Some people say, preacher, I love hard preaching. Well, listen, if our appetite is for hard preaching and not clean living, something's wrong in our life. And I've been in meetings, and you probably have too, where the preacher thinks it's his job to just get up and be as obnoxious as possible. I'm usually that guy without even trying. But some preachers think that's their job. Just get up and scandalize everybody. Just bomb them. Shock and awe. Just try to try to hurt everybody's feelings hard as they can. And there's some people that eat that up. Now, let me tell you something. It should not bother us when somebody tells a hard truth to us. But it shouldn't simply be so that we can put some self-righteous pin in our lapel and say, boy, look at how hard a preaching I can handle. Rather, it should be that we should respond to it in obedience And say, I love hard preaching, not because it hurts, not because it makes me hurt, but because it makes me holy. Not because it simply convicts me, but because it consecrates me. Because it changes the way that I live. The problem with Ananias was that he came saying, here's all of it. But it wasn't all of it. And often when the preaching of the word of God's going on, we'll listen and we know, we know there's areas in our life. That we're not sold out to the Lord. But then when it's time to respond, the Holy Ghost says, all right, what are you going to do about it, son? How are you going to respond? We say, no, never mind, I'm okay. And what we are implying is, Lord, you have all of me. The problem with what Ananias did was that he came and he gave a certain part. Boy, isn't that just like us? I'm going to say a word about this here in a moment. We want to give God certain parts. And God's not interested in certain parts. He wants all of it. You say, preacher, you're telling me that God's going to just lay claim on everything in my life. I'm not saying he's going to take everything from you, but it all belongs to him. He came and he gave a certain part and he implied in doing that, I'm giving everything. And the problem with us is that we come and we give a certain part and then we imply, Lord, I've given you everything. They lied about what they gave, but notice number two, they lied about what they kept. 
They claimed as though there was no part of it that they had kept selfishly unto themselves. We have a bad problem with golden calves in our lives. I'll be honest with you. We have learned probably through conditioning the ability to compartmentalize our life and to develop very, very meticulously curated blind spots to certain pet sins that we have already decided we refuse to give up. And it, it's almost shocking the degree. You know, you look at these situations and it's it's tragic. You look at a situation where there's unfaithfulness in a marriage and it's obvious, it's transparent, but one spouse just simply refuses to acknowledge it because they know acknowledging it would mean they'd have to respond to it. They'd have to do something about it. And so they just live in, in blissful self-deception, pretending as though that's not taking place under their very own roof. And you and I would look at a person like that and say, how could you do that? How could you live like that? How could you pretend? How could you deal with the hurt? How could you deal with the guilt? How could you possibly live that way? And yet we do the same thing with spiritual adultery to God day by day. We have these little pet sins that we've built a little privacy screen around so that we don't ever have to acknowledge it except when we're participating in it. And we don't want to admit to God that we've got this little area of our life fenced off. We want him to believe we have everything. Like Samuel said to Saul, we preached about Sunday morning, what meaneth in the bleeding of these sheep? If we've really given him everything, then why does he only have a certain part? We want him to have that certain part. We want him to have our Sunday morning worship. We want him to have our testimony in a workplace, right? We, we want him to have our family devotional with our kids or with our spouse. But do we really want him to have everything? I see the details of their lives. But notice number two, the deviousness of their lives. Verse three, Peter gives him no quarter. He said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? I want you to notice the deviousness at work here. Not only the details, but the deviousness of their lives. Why were their lies so so dangerous, so devilish? Well, notice number one, notice whose bidding they were doing. The Bible says that Satan filled his heart to lie to the Holy Ghost. Now, as a saved, born-again believer in this New Testament dispensation, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, this is not something that Satan could have done against the will of Ananias. In other words, it's not suggesting that Satan somehow possessed him and indwelt him and against his will took over the agency of his life. But what Peter's getting at is saying, don't you realize, Ananias, that you are doing exactly what the devil wants you to do when you lie to the Holy Ghost? You know, the devil is the father of lies. He traffics in, in lies, distortion, and untruth. And when we lie to the Holy Spirit, we are literally helping Satan get a toehold in our life. You understand that the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He wants to take the chains off of us and help us live in victory in Jesus Christ. When we lie to him and won't be honest with him, and the work of the Holy Spirit can only be done in the honesty of the human heart. We must be honest. We have to be transparent. If we lie to him, then he can do no work in us, not because he is impotent to work, but because the criteria that's needed for him to be able to affect change in us has been nullified. And what we're doing is literally helping the devil keep us in bondage.
You say, oh, preacher, I just sometimes struggle to admit things. Well, you can whitewash it however you want. But at the end of the day, you're literally helping Satan do his work by refusing to be honest with the Holy Spirit. Notice whose bidding they were doing. Notice number two, the blame that Peter mentions. And this, I think, is what he means in verse four. He says, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Now, again, you want my opinion, and you don't come for that, but I'm going to give it anyway. (coughs) I won't charge you extra. I, I don't believe Ananias had the liberty to not give all. I believe from where Peter's standing, and for the point he's making, I understand what he's getting at. But I believe God had been dealing with Ananias' heart. And I believe the whole reason Ananias even went down this road of selling this property and doing this is because the Holy Ghost was dealing with him about this matter in the first place. Sort of in the same respect, there may be things that you would pardon me for that God wouldn't pardon me for. There may be things you'd give me grace about, but that God wouldn't give me grace about because God knows what he's dealt with my heart about. And so what does Peter mean here? What he means is this, Ananias, nobody made you do this. Nobody came and took your land from you. Nobody marched you down to the to the clerk office and made you sell it. Nobody made you come in here and give any part of it. And notice he puts a fine point on it, an exclamation mark in that last phrase. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Now, a student of the Bible would probably be quick to say, well, preacher, I thought Satan had filled his heart. And that's absolutely true, but that's how you know this is not talking about some sort of possession beyond the agency of Ananias. When Peter says Satan's filled his heart, he's not saying against your will he's done this, but he's saying you've left an open door in your heart and in your life, and you've done the work of Satan by doing this very thing. Because he doesn't want Peter to be able to say, like old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. He says, no, Ananias, you conceived this thing in your heart. It wasn't Barnabas' fault for giving what he gave to the Lord. Uh, You may be doing the devil's work, but at the end of the day, the devil couldn't have made you do it. Nobody expected you to. I didn't twist your arm. What he's saying is at the end of the day, Ananias, nobody's to blame for this but you. And I'll tell you, when we lie to the Holy Spirit, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We can say, well, somebody made me feel bad about my Christian walk. Well, go ahead and get you a pacifier. That makes you feel better. But at the end of the day, that ain't no excuse to to be a hypocrite and play the hypocrite with God. If you're not happy with where your Christian life is, I know a God that will help it be better. But that's no excuse to start playing games with God. You say, well, preacher, it just embarrassed me that they did more for the Lord than me. Good. Good. It it should embarrass us if we're not doing everything we can. You say, but preacher, I'm doing everything I can. Then you have nothing to be embarrassed about. You say, but preacher, I'm not doing everything. Yeah, that's it. If you're not, then you and you alone answer for that before the Lord. And he wants Ananias to understand there's no one he can shift the blame to. And that's the beautiful thing about our relationship with the Holy Spirit is at the end of the day, no one can put their thumbs on the scale of how we respond to God. No one can make us serve God. No one can stop us from serving God. We and we alone decide whether we're going to live for the Lord and be obedient to him. I I want you to notice who's bidding that you're doing and notice the blame, but then notice the blindness. He says this, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Why does he say this? Is he saying anything Ananias doesn't already know? 
No. So what's he trying to stress? What's he trying to emphasize here? What he's trying to say is this. How foolish, Ananias, it was for you to try to lie to God. God knows everything. He's saying, if it was just a matter of lying to men, maybe you would have got away with it. He said, the problem is you're lying to God. And you ought to have enough sense, and I ought to have enough sense to know that it's a futile thing to try to lie to God. God's never been deceived. Oh, I want to say that again. I want you to really hear it. God has never been deceived. Never one time throughout human history has anyone ever pulled anything over on God. They've never deceived him. They've never told him a lie that he believed. There's never been anything escape his knowledge and his awareness. And this is why, by the way, it's so imperative that we just go ahead and get over it and be honest. Because we might as well. You may fool a lot of people, but you're never going to fool God. And he's the one with whom we have to do. So I see not only the details of their lies and the deviousness of their lies, but notice finally, and I'm done, verse 5, notice the danger of their lies. The Bible says, And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Great fear came on all them that heard these things. Now, <clears throat> there's much more message we could preach. We'd go on and talk about the effect on his family, his wife, and many other things. But I just want you to notice two simple things before we close. Why is it dangerous to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, there is the danger that God would remove you as an obstacle. I'll circle back to what my pastor said. It's a good thing God doesn't strike everybody dead that lies to the Holy Ghost. And I'm thankful God doesn't. I would be dead. You probably would be too. If you wouldn't be, I sure enough want to shake your hand. So why did God strike Ananias dead? Well, simply for this reason. Ananias had yielded himself to a, an attitude and a disposition of hypocrisy. You see, here's the truth. When a person is okay being a hypocrite, there's nothing else God can do with them. Once they're content to say, I know God's displeased with my life, but I don't care as long as I have men's approval. Then there is no pressure point left for God to deal with their life. Now, we all sometimes are hypocritical. I hope our heart is smitten by that. I hope we're struck by that. I hope it bothers us. Because when we grow to the place that it doesn't bother us, what will bother us? And if nothing will bother us, we've just simply become a stumbling block. We're just there to show others how to be hypocrites too. And when we reach that place, why would God leave us here? I could tell you all the reasons why it's a mercy of God and precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints and all the reasons why it would be justified for God to remove someone that is in that condition. But trusting you know all those things, I'll just simply say this. If you're not serving a purpose, God has no reason to keep you walking this earth. And if you are a stumbling block, why would he not take you out of the way? The first danger is that God would remove, remove you as an example or as an obstacle. But look at the last phrase. The Bible says great fear came on all them that heard these things. Second danger is this, that God would use you as an example. Again, why did God do this? Well, it, it's reiterated again down in verse number 11. Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. God was establishing some things. This was early in the New Testament church. And there was much still to be decided about what the course, humanly speaking, would be for the character of the New Testament church. And he just went ahead and settled this thing real early on that we ain't playing games. This is serious. 
and that God will chasten his children and he will deal with his children and he's not going to per, uh, permit the same sort of, of depravity and, and self-indulgence that man's religion promotes and rewards. We live in a society today, you can see it really very expressively in the Roman Catholic Church, where the more degenerate and the more depraved that an individual is, the further they advance. And it's really no different than any political entity. I remember years ago, Richard Evans, he was my high school history teacher, and he made the statement, he said, if you knew what it takes to get to the place that you can run for public office, you wouldn't vote for none of them. He said, if you knew what they have to do to get to that place where they'll permit them to run for office, he said, you wouldn't vote for none of them. And the Roman Catholic Church is much the same way. These guys, we look at it and we say, man, I can't believe the Pope is a Marxist. Man, I can. I can. They wouldn't let him be Pope if he wasn't. Preacher, I can't believe about all these priests molesting kids. I can. I can. A great many of them, probably the first time they ever did, they did to gain entry into that perverted institution. You say, what are you getting at? Well, I, I'm saying this, that that very often, I don't know what I'm saying, amen. What I'm saying is that God was establishing this reality that he wasn't going to allow his his body, his people to operate in this way. And so he was using Ananias as an example. You've heard and I've heard my whole life hundreds of sermon illustrations about people who serve as cautionary tales because of their disobedience to the Lord. It's not by accident. It's not by accident. When we grow to the place that we're willing to lie to the Holy Spirit, sometimes the most glory that God can get out of our life is as a stop sign to try to caution people away from going the same direction. And it's the sad truth that a great many people you and I have known in our life, that's what they are. Their life is a stop sign. The most that God gets out of their life is when some preacher stands up and says, let me tell you about a young man or tell you about a young lady. Let me tell you about a young couple. Let me tell you about an older gentleman. And they begin to talk about how their life fell into disrepair and disarray because of their disobedience to the Lord. What a shame it would be if that's the most glory God could get out of our life. But, you know, the truth is when we learn to play the hypocrite and grow comfortable with it, very often there's nothing else redeemable out of our life. See, we're either going to get honest or we're going to spiral. So what are we going to do? You're either going to choose to respond to the Lord or you're going to clamp the hypocrite's mask further on and strap it tighter. What are we going to do? I hope that you'll be honest with the Lord as he deals with your life. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. And if the Lord's dealt with your heart about anything at all, I want you to meet him down here. Not for me, not for the altar call, not for the church, but for the Lord. To be honest with him, to let him have his will and way in your life. Lord, bless this invitation. I pray glorify the Lord Jesus and magnify him. Lord, not just through the things that have been said, but through our response and through our obedience tonight. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name.